Hello and welcome to Alexander Disease Research Update, episode number seven, recorded on January 25th, 2022. I'm Albie Messing from the Waisman Center at the University of Wisconsin. And with me today, again, is Michael Brenner from the University of Alabama, Birmingham. During the question and answer section, we'll also have a new guest, Murray Brilliant from the University of Wisconsin to talk about the general topic of using electronic health records in research. Before we get started, please send feedback to AXDRU podcast at Wasteman, that's W-A-I-S-M-A-N dot W-I-S-C dot E-D-U. Today, we'll cover two recent papers. The first is by Bichetti et al. entitled Beneficial Effect of Phenytoin and Carbamazepine on GFAP Gene Expression and mutant GFAP folding in a cellular model of Alexander's disease, published in Frontiers in Pharmacology. The reason I thought we should spend a little bit of time on this paper uh, was because the title promises a great deal. Two commonly used drugs could have beneficial effects in treating Alexander disease patients. I have a number of complaints about the conclusions reached in this paper, and so we'll try to go through just a few of these. Their goal was to use a cell culture model treated with these drugs to study the effects on GFAP. And the culture model they use is a tumor cell line, an astrocytoma cell line that expresses GFAP. That's problem number one in my mind. Problem number two, for phenytoin at least, is despite their assertion to the contrary, the concentrations of phenytoin they use in culture are toxic if they were to be used in humans. So I think the design of these experiments are flawed from the beginning and the levels of drugs that they're using are excessive. My source for information about toxic levels of drugs comes from what's widely considered a Bible of pharmacology, Goodman and Gilman's Pharmacological Basis of Therapeutics, published in 2018. Mike, do you want to add some things to this? Just to elaborate on what what you've just said, so three times in the paper they say that this system is a reliable in vitro model of Alexander disease, but they don't say in what sense it's a valid model a reliable model, and they don't provide a reference. Um, so that's of some concern. And as, as we'll say, see later, it's certainly not a reliable model for looking at expression GFAP. So there are two things that they do. So one is they're looking at the effects of these two drugs on GFAP expression and protein levels. And again, this is being done in these U251 human glioma cell line. And we've shown in our work on studying the regulation of expression of GFAP, that this cell line, in fact, any cell line does not give reliable results for expression of GFAP. We've shown multiple instances where there are contradictions between what you obtain when you look use these cell lines compared to what you obtain when you use transgenic mice, very striking differences. So we actually turned to using transgenic mice for all of our studies of the control of expression of GFAP because the cell lines were unreliable. So I think that the results as they've obtained then looking at the effect on GFAP mRNA levels and 
protein are not valid, or at least need to be substantiated in a more critical system. So for the, um, the effects that they have of carbamazepine on the filament formation, I think those are of, of some interest, but I have a concern there and that what they're using is GFAP that's been tagged at the C-terminal end with GFP with this is green fluorescent protein and then they monitor it fluorescently. We have shown that if you alter the C-terminal end of GFAP, you get aberrant aggregation, you get aberrant filament formation. So that addition per se would influence the result. Um, other people have used this same method, but they use a control. You then do wild type with the same tag put on the C-terminal to show that you get a differential effect when you have a mutation present in the GFAP like the R239C that they're using. They did not do that control. And that's a st fairly striking omission. So it's difficult to conclude that the effects they're seeing have to do with the mutation rather than to the alteration they're doing. And there are methods to completely avoid that, which have been in use again for more than 10 years, such as using human, uh, expressing human protein in mouse cells. And then there's a human specific antibody that you can use to follow the GFAP. Or again, you could use the, the mouse system that you develop, where you've got a knocky end of the Alexander disease mutation in the GFAP. So they're really not using the current methods in that study. Mouse and now rat. Yes. Again, so while the title had some appeal, certainly, I think this paper promises more than it delivers. Let's turn our attention to a, a better paper by Grossi et al. Parental somatic mosaicism uncovers inheritance of an apparently de novo GFAP mutation published in Frontiers in Genetics. And full disclosure here, both Mike and I were reviewers on this paper, so obviously we liked it. The overall question being addressed here is ultimately all about the risk of having another affected child. If the variant is de novo, then the risk would be considered extraordinarily low. But what if the parent is actually mosaic, including in germ cells, such as sperm and eggs? We've previously said that the risk of germline mosaicism is very low, perhaps 1% or less, just based on the fact that there were no proven examples of that in the literature. And while there have been a few publications claiming germline mosaicism, there was always one hole or another in their argument. I think this is really the first good example of germline mosaicism. And so it's, it's really worth highlighting for that reason. The way they, these authors approached it was to look at 11 trios, that is two parents plus a child, uh, taking DNA from all three of, of these individuals in each trio, the parents in each case were asymptomatic. And the results were that in one of these 11 trios, they found evidence for mosaicism in the mother, where approximately 8.9% of the DNA analyzed was the GFAP variant. 91% was, was the normal GFAP sequence. So Mike, what do you think about the way they approached this and the conclusions they drew from it. 
So I think they approach it in a very thorough manner, and I agree with the conclusions. And perhaps to give a little bit of background to this work, um, this question of whether the mutations arise in the patient or arise in the parental germline. Before this work, it was already very strongly suspected that mutations arose in the parents rather than during development of the patient. And this is in part because of the way that these mutations were detected. In nearly all cases, this is done by sequencing DNA that's been isolated from blood or saliva or a scrape of the inner cheek. And the DNA sequence data that's obtained, it's a series of peaks coming off a chromatographic column. And each peak has one of four colors, and these colors we correspond to the four nucleotides in DNA. And the DNA sequence is just read from the order in which these colored peaks appear. In addition to the main peaks, though, there are frequently much smaller ones that appear in the same position due to random noise in the, in the system. And these noise peaks may be about one-eighth the size of a genuine peak. So because of this background noise and because the mutations are heterozygous, which means they're present on one of the chromosomes but not on the other, for mutation to be reliably detected, it generally must be present in about 25% of the cell sample. Uh, this, this indicates that it would have had to occur either quite early in fetal development of the patient or in one of the parental germ lines. And this latter possibility seemed much more likely since there are a large number of cell divisions that occur in the formation of the germ cells and the parents. So that's one reason that this was already strongly suspected. Another is if it does occur in the germline, there have been studies that show that it's much more frequently occurs on the chromosome from the father than from the mother, this kind of mutation where you just have a, a missense mutation. So we actually did a study where we looked at mutations that were thought to have arisen de novo and asked, did these mutations occur on the chromosome that came from the father or from the mother? And we found out that in the huge majority of cases, it came from the father. I think it was something like 24 out of 28 cases. So that was also really strong evidence that it was occurring in the germline rather than in the, in the patient. And lastly, there was, there was a case that I think is reasonably convincing where a mother had two kids who had the same mutation. The mother was wild type for it. And there were different fathers for each of these kids. So it was very unlikely that it was in the father. So it's like the mother was wild, wild type, but since she had two kids with the same mutation, she was probably mosaic. So all of this is inferential, though. Very, very strong case. I would be willing to bet one in a million or better odds. But this paper from Grossi et al. does demonstrate unequivocally that a parent did have, have the mutation that, was, that the child had, so likely passed it on through the germline. One thing I didn't point out, which maybe is worth mentioning, this, it was a very thorough study that they did. So they, they not only showed um, the presence of the mosaicism by one method, they used three different methods. They all came up with pretty much the same result. So it was really a very thorough, well-done study. Mike, can you go over why results from blood might not be representative of cells in the rest of the body, such as germ cells? And that's based on some experimental findings that we had, where we did find a patient where the mutation did arise in the patient. And the way we know that is when we assay buccal DNA, which inside of the cheek, 
which is ectoderm, which is the same stuff your brain is made of, the mutation was readily detectable. It's probably present in all the cells. When we measured blood DNA, we could not find it at all. And we did a sensitive assay where we could have detected one cell in a thousand. We did not see it at all. So what you see in the blood may have nothing to do with what you see in germ cells or in the brain. It, it can be extremely variable. So that was the reason for caution and trying to estimate risk by looking at blood. The conclusion is that germline mosaicism does occur. We still can't use this to provide a, a real risk estimate for having a second ch child uh, affected um, with the same variant. Uh, you know, I'll mention that there is another paper in the pipeline. I'll be sending it out on the next email that was just published recently by Mateo Sadal. They uh, give a case report of an individual patient and mention in passing that one of the parents was mosaic, but they provided no evidence for how they determined mosaicism in that parent. And finally, I'll just mention a couple of minor things that I only noticed in rereading the Grossi paper in preparation for this podcast. In the introduction, they have a sentence where I think it's just a matter of English, where they write a recurrent occurrence of the same disease-causing GFAP mutation in siblings of parents who tested negative for the variant strongly suggests the presence of a germinal <clears throat> mosaicism. And siblings of parents isn't really what they're talking about. I think they meant siblings from parents. I agree. I saw the that same right? thing and wondered, should we tell them to make a revision? <laughs> I'll, I'll write to them. Uh, I'll write okay. to them after this podcast because it is. Yes. I read it again and, and I thought, what? Um, yes. And then the second thing is probably in response to one of the reviews, they cited Leodal from 2006. I think that's your paternal inheritance paper. So that's cited in the text, but it's not actually in the reference list. Okay. So I'm sure those corrections will be, will be made to the online version at some point mm -hmm. down the line. Now for some email. You can send your questions to axdrupodcast at wasteman.wisc.edu, and we'll try our best to address them in a future podcast. Please send any feedback about these podcasts to the same email. Question number one. Santi writes, in the rat model, do you measure efficacy of the antisense therapy on the rats with variable external factors which may contribute to effectiveness of the treatment? For example, environmental stress, diet, et cetera. I just wonder if other variables are playing a part in the effectiveness of the treatment since I've noticed that patients with the same GFAP genes affected may have different symptoms, rapidity of the declines, severity of the disease. So there are actually two questions here, both very interesting. As far as the first one, have we looked at whether there are other things that modify the response to treatment, such as environmental stress, diet, et cetera? And the answer to that is, for now, no. We've tried very hard to keep everything as constant as possible from the rat side of things in order to give us the clearest result about whether the antisense would have an effect. Down the line, we'd certainly be very interested in looking at those other factors. 
The second question has to do with the fact that patients can be quite variable, even when they have the same GFAP variant. For a long time, we've postulated that there are modifiers, such as stress, head trauma, infection, other genes that could influence the severity of the disease. And we're very interested in trying to identify those. So far, nobody has successfully done that, although it's a continuing pursuit in several labs. Question two, Gil writes, how can I read full papers? Some don't even have abstracts. When I send out my monthly email listing of new publications, I provide links to a publicly available database, PubMed, from the NIH in the United States. That database provides a lot of information, but it's limited by what the journals actually allow. In some cases, the journals require subscriptions in order for you to read the full paper. In some cases, the journals are what's called open access. And in, or in those cases, I can provide links to the full text version of the paper. In addition, usually papers have abstracts. And in that case, the abstracts would be included in the PubMed listing. But sometimes the papers don't have abstracts. And in that case, it's not in PubMed. So I can provide that in the, in the link. Now I want to briefly go back to the ongoing question of how many people are affected worldwide with Alexander disease. Previously, we've discussed how little real data there is on this topic. Today, I thought it would be a good idea to talk about whether there are things on the horizon, particularly relating to electronic health records, that might help us get closer to an answer about prevalence. Popping in for this discussion is a good friend and colleague, Dr. Murray Brilliant. Murray, since this is your first time on the podcast, can you say a bit about your background and what brought you to the world of electronic health records? Uh, sure. By, by training, I'm a geneticist and very much interested in, in rare disorders. Currently, I'm a senior research scientist at the Wasteman Center at University of Wisconsin. Previously, I was director of the Precision Medicine uh, Research Center at the Marshfield Clinic. And that's where uh, I began to work with electronic health records, where we had uh, something called a personalized medicine research project, which included 20,000 patients uh, with um, their complete electronic medical records, as well as genetic information. And using this really provided a great means of discovery of how our, our genes and how combinations of medical issues get, uh, present in patients. And my understanding is that the Marshfield Clinic was one of the first health care institutions that adopted electronic health records. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, they have an in-house uh, electronic health record system that has been going on for almost 40 years now and uh, provides very detailed records, medical records on individuals. And the beauty of the electronic health records is that these are data that can be sorted out on computers as opposed to um, written health records, for example. 
and also electronic health records, will, which we'll discuss in more detail in just a minute here, include ICD codes. And these are, are numbers and letters that are given for various uh, medical conditions and, and also for tests and things like that. So we'll get to the ICD codes in a minute, but is it correct to say that there's certainly been an explosion of electronic health records by the healthcare industry, probably worldwide. And most healthcare institutions in the United States now use electronic health records. Is that an exaggeration? Yes, that's not an exaggeration. Yes, most, um, uh, almost all of them now use electronic health records. It's, it's, a, it's really... Um, as part of a, a push by the federal government. But they don't talk to each other very well. That's uh, one of the big issues is the interoperability of these systems so that there are, are many different uh, electronic health system types. There's some major ones that many hospitals and clinics use, but they're not built for interoperability. Okay, so how do people go about using the electronic health record systems for research? So one has to understand that uh, basically um, the electronic health records, specifically the ICD codes, are really billing codes. And so we have to be mindful of that when we, when we use these codes uh, to, as surrogates for the actual medical conditions and problems that individual patients have. So one example of that is the ICD code for heart attack, myocardial infarction. So if we look very carefully at individuals who've ever been given those codes, we note that a large number of them, significant number of them, have never had a heart attack. So, or at least didn't have a heart attack when that code was put in, in place. The reason for this is again, it's a billing code. So if a patient presents at, a, at an emergency department uh, with chest pains and things like that, they'll be evaluated for, um, for a heart attack with uh, all kinds of tests and things like that. So the tests would only be paid for with that code. And otherwise, if we put in indigestion, none of those uh, tests for heart attack would be covered. So the way we use this in order to determine that a particular patient actually had a heart attack, we have a couple of tricks. One trick is to make sure that it's, this code is, is there on uh, not only on the first occasion, but on subsequent occasions that uh, encounters with the health system. So somebody who actually had a heart attack would be coded at the time that they present as a heart attack and then with subsequent care uh, as well. So we, if we look at this code on two separate occasions, we call that rule of two. The other way to be sure that we're actually correct with these assignments is to combine that code with other codes for, for tests and test results that are in, indicative of a heart attack, an actual heart attack. So using those kinds of tricks, we can use the electronic health record to to correctly ascertain who has had a heart attack and who hasn't. One of the problems for the Alexander disease field is that it has no specific ICD code for that disorder. 
and it's lumped in with other ones and not in a consistent way. So eventually, there may be a, a, a unique ICD code for Alexander disease, which will help. Right now, that's a complication. So is this an approach using electronic health records that just has to wait for the future? Or is it something people could be pursuing now? I think it depends on, on the, the constellation of, of phenotypes, that is, medical issues that an individual has that defines Alexander disease. So for some rare disorders that I'm familiar with, there's probably six or seven characteristics and that, you know, some of them are more common than others. So they might be weighted. Uh, but in many cases, it's, you know, whether you have three of these eight features that defines, uh, that, that gives you a, a high probability that you have found an individual with this rare disorder. But those are not as rare as Alexander disease. The ones I'm talking about are present at about one in 5,000, one in 10,000, that, uh, that sort of thing. In theory, this might work, but it's a, it's a long ways off. In theory, it, it could work, but um, yeah, it's, it would be a long ways off. One would have to have very specific and, and almost fingerprint diagnostic criteria in order to pick this out of you know, a million, million people, one in a million. Are there prospects, and maybe this, we'll wrap it up with this, are there prospects for integrating the electronic health record systems uh, across the country and maybe in multiple countries where you get several million people in the same database? The, the short answer is yes, but it's, it's difficult to do. And there are, there are several projects that I know of that are, are working on this. There are ways, um, you know, to, to translate each type of electronic health record into kind of a, a universal language. And then that can be used to, to go across uh, different, different electronic healthcare systems. And that's, that's great for research. Right? Thanks, Murray. I hope you'll join us again sometime. That's all for today's episode of Alexander Disease Research Update. Thanks for listening, and thank you to Michael and Murray for joining me today. Our theme song was written by Charlie Allenson, special technical assistance from my daughters Zoe and Rebecca, and from Clark Kellogg at the UW's Weisman Center. And thanks to our donors for these podcasts, the Barrent Riddle family. I'm Albie Messing. See you next time.